Welcome to the Cricket's Sidecar, where we go a little further into a story of note with the person who wrote it. Hello, it is Chris McGinn here at the Manchester Cricket with Erica Brown, and today we have Peter Fippen, Essex local. Hello, Peter. How are you? Good, how are you? Good. Good. Peter, we are very lucky to have Peter um, writing these fantastic pieces for the cricket dealing with the Great Marsh. Peter Fippen, um, in his bio that we have here, is a hydrologist and coastal scientist with 40 years of experience in water resource management. He's currently the coordinator of the Eight Towns and the Great Marsh Committee, a division of the Mass Bay's National Estuary Partnership, and the Merrimack Valley Planning. I just know him as the, you know, the guy in Essex that swims in Chibaco Lake. <laughs> Every day during the year, turns out. He's a marsh expert and is helping to make inroads to preserve, save, watch, and help our great marsh. So recently, Peter has written a fantastic article for us on things that are invading the marsh. But what I found to be kind of interesting right out of the gate is that when you talk about Phragmites, you discovered... Phragmites. Phragmites. Sorry, Phragmites. Um, Phragmites australis. Yes. Actually, yeah. wow. what are what are Phragmites? In, it's in common reed. It's, a, it's called common reed, and it's just a highly invasive plant um, that you see it everywhere. It's not just in the marsh. You see it in freshwater systems. You see it along roadways you see it pretty much anywhere that the water quality is impaired to some degree and it allows um it's very opportunistic like most invasive plants and it can grow in in uh, brackish water polluted water that type of thing and it it gets a foothold in there and then it proliferates Right. But you, it hadn't really been too much of a problem. But then, crazily, when you were working on another project, a kayaking guide. Yes. <laughs> yes. Marsh, in, the, in the Great Marsh. In the yeah. Great Marsh, which is fantastic. As a side note, we should yeah. do a whole thing on kayaking. But, um, and then you noticed in these stands that it was, it was expanding. Yes. There, there have for quite a while been large stands, you know, half acre, quarter acre in size, out in the open middle of the marsh. I mean, it's very common for the Phragmites to grow along the upland edge. Um, and you'll see that everywhere, all up and down the Massachusetts, New England coast for sure. But to see it out in the open marsh, a half mile from the upland edge is very unusual. But there were, there were some in there, quite a few, you know, maybe a couple hundred of them in the northern part of the Great Marsh up in Newbury, Newburyport area, Rowley area. And they were, they appeared to be fairly stable and no they didn't seem to be spreading which you know i mean it sounds like a lot a couple hundred but if you know the marsh is thousands of acres so it really didn't amount to a whole lot but as you mentioned i don't know maybe a dozen years ago or so we were working on another project and i was working with a um sportsman hunter fisherman who's in the marsh all the time and he said you know I haven't really noticed that these have been expanding at all, but I see now that there are small emergent growth coming up and they look like they're getting larger and larger. So we started to research that, you know, document, map it, look at the density, look at the measure of the heights, um, you know, all the different parameters that you would in a mapping project. And um, we discovered that indeed it was um, expanding and these uh, large stands were growing, new stands were coming in. Um, something had changed. We weren't sure what, but we were trying to document what was out there. 
And uh, so we went forward, we developed with our legislative delegation for the Great Marsh to create a task force, the Great Marsh Revitalization Task Force, um, which had membership from pretty much anybody, any stakeholder that was interested in invasive species, in particular Phragmites in the Great Marsh. So it was everything from NOAA and EPA down to the local communities and everybody in between. And they provided guidance on how to move forward with what we were doing. And we got others involved in doing research and this, that, and the other thing, and ended up with a program to try to at least contain, if not eradicate, the invasive Phragmites in the open marsh. Mm-hmm. Um, as I mentioned, there's a ton of it all along the edges, way, way more than what anybody could handle. So we weren't after that, but mainly in the open marsh, we wanted to allow the marsh to restore itself to native vegetation and the native processes. Great. And you mentioned the the why, which in your article, you indicated that perhaps most certainly climate change is one of the things that has changed what used to be just along the shore and now is out in these stands. Well, what... And this is just uh, my opinion, but you know the, the tidal. There's tidal cycles, like every what seven years, I think you have higher high tides or lower high tides. You know they sort of oscillate, and I think what happened was we coupled a few years of lower high tides with some abnormally high rainfall um, years. So now you're freshening up the middle of the marsh. And I think what happened was some of the rhizomes or roots from the Phragmites got out into there. They got established. And once they get established, they sort of create their own environment with their thatch. They build up the marsh, they trap fresh water, and they can continue to grow and expand. And I think that's how they originally got there. Why they were um, expanding again, maybe because of... uh, you know, more high rainfall events and lower high tides. I haven't really looked into that. I mean, we've been so focused on trying to eliminate them that right. uh, we haven't further researched, but yeah. Okay. I, I mean, it's funny. I'm listening to this and I'm sort of the kind of an outsider in this. The Great Marsh itself, I mean, is it's 25,000 acres if I, if, if, if I yeah. remember. Yeah. And it spans many states. It starts essentially just south of... Um, it's in the Seacoast area, area, the area Seacoast, down to yeah, yeah, south down of Maine. To, yep. And it hooks all the way down. It goes through the Merrimack Valley. It goes down through Ipswich. It comes down th- right through Essex and then hooks up into West Gloucester. Is that yep. correct? Yep. Yeah. So the Anasquam River. Yeah. yeah. And, and I think of it, it's funny. I, this is a, a decidedly non-scientist <laughs> take on it. But from my observation, there's two things I've noticed about the Great Marsh. Number one, it's almost like this kind of great ecosystem, this this kind of gem um, that that takes in, you know, marshland with different kinds of types of things. It's also a great almost sponge for for many of the things that are hard, that are bigger challenges with the environment. Isn't that right? Yes, yeah. I mean, so true. I mean, the 25,000 acres includes you know, the barrier beaches. It includes the tidal flats. It includes the subtidal areas, the creeks, the marsh itself, um, the islands that are within. So it's a, it's a huge and diverse ecosystem, and it has a lot of, lot of positive functions, everything from, as you mentioned, dampening the storm surge from storms to mitigating pollutants runoff from the upland 
uh, areas. So it has a, a, a lot of good positive qualities that we, we decide as positive qualities. I remember going to the Great Marsh Symposium several years ago, actually, the last time it was in person. The, the next one will be November 3rd or oh, 9th or something like that, so look out for that. Well, the, one, the thing that struck me when I went was uh, the variety of... This, th there's this wide spectrum of people that all work together, and they care about the Great Marsh, and it actually includes commercial fishing interests. It also mm -hmm. includes scientists, includes municipalities. Yep. So that whole thing, I found that to be really interesting, and you're right in the middle of that, isn't that right? Yeah, um, and that's part of what one of the the grants that we got from, um, I think, believe it was from NOAA, but it was spearheaded by National Wildlife Federation to bring all these entities together, everything from the communities for community planning purposes to um, you know the uh, environmental organizations that have some jurisdiction, to the landowners, including uh, Greenbelt and trustees and uh, Audubon, to all work together in common direction. And that has really taken off now. I mean, some of the organizations that didn't have a real direct vested, I guess, uh, presence in the Great Marsh now have scientists that we're working with, you know, at trustees at Audubon, um, the wildlife refuge has always been there, but you know, it's they're starting to, to care more about their coastal marsh properties. That's interesting. And Chris, I, it's funny because I that was just me. I I literally didn't know. Well, this is, yeah, no, this is good. This is why one of the things that that I wanted you to speak about because I I hear it and you've walked me through it, but I think it's important to know is can you explain. I know that there are so many organizations working together because everybody has an interest in keeping the marsh healthy and vital, but you specifically work with the Great Marsh Partnership, and can you remind me of you know what that is as an organization? The Great Marsh Partnership, it's sort of an ad hoc, informal, although becoming a little bit more formal group of like-minded researchers and scientists that have come together and work on projects together. Typically, when a project is done, it's done at a local level, a small project in a community or something like that. What the Great Marsh Partnership aims to do is look at large-scale projects, look at marsh-wide or regional projects where you're looking at restoring a couple thousand acres or, you know, 500 acres, and it may cross um, multiple property jurisdictions. And, you know, it's currently composed of see if I can remember, the um, Wildlife Refuge, Parker River National Wildlife Refuge, University of New Hampshire, Boston University, Mass Audubon, Mass Bays and Merrimack Valley Planning, which is me, a couple of the local communities. We have some scientists and people that are involved at the community level, and National Wildlife Federation is within that. So the, you know, I'm sure I left somebody out, but there are, it's a group of people that, you know, we all sort of bounce ideas off each other, work together, know what each other's doing, and try to promote and get funding to do that type of work. So we're all sort of in the same line. As you'll see in the next article coming out, the Pepperweed uh, program is something that was spearheaded by the Wildlife Refuge, along with Mass Audubon, and you know others have joined in 
for instance, my role is I go after areas where they can't really gain access. You know, I have boat um, capabilities and other partners and some equipment so that we can go into areas where volunteers can't go. And we're using um, limited chemical to go in and treat these areas that are the most dense and most difficult to go after. And we've worked, you know, we'll go in and work with um, trustees of reservations on their property to do stuff. We'll do it on homeowners' properties. We'll do it where they have assigned us. And we're part of the the greater, it's called Mass, Maine, New Hampshire, Pepperweed, I don't know, working group. And so it's not just Massachusetts, not just the Great Marsh, but other areas to to try to stifle and limit the spread of um, pepperweed. But that's... You know, just an example of how the partnership gets involved with others. And it's not that we only work with each other. We work with whoever has an interest in whatever the project happens to be, whether it's, you know, thin layer placement of sediment or marsh edge erosion or green crab mitigation or right. whatever. So we'll work with whoever is interested and wants help. Perfect. Perfect. I was going to loop back. I jumped into Phragmites, but you spoke about the the dominant big four coastal invasives, one of which is the Phragmites, but then you just mentioned the pepperweed, pepper which is weed, next yep. up on the list. So yes. can you talk us through a little bit about what it is and why it's a problem? It's, you know, it's another invasive plant. Um, it's not quite as harassing as Phragmites, but it can be. It You know, in um, the Midwest and... Inland areas, it can really spread rapidly. In the marsh system itself, it only grows along the edge. It's like at the very upper edge of the marsh, Mm -hmm. but it can get dense there. That program, because of its location, lends itself to volunteers. And as I mentioned, the Wildlife Refuge in Audubon, especially Audubon, have been spearheading um, volunteer efforts for the last 10 years or so with school groups, with businesses that give their employees, you know, time off to do something, you know, in the environmental world, you know, nonprofit organizations go out and actually pull it. It doesn't have the root system that Phragmites does, so you can actually pull it. It's a much, uh, it's got a woody stem, but it's very, you know, it's like a half an inch or so in diameter. White flowers, right about now, we'll be going out as a matter of fact, I'm going up to Newbury, up to the um, wildlife refuge to get our equipment, our backpack equipment, and get that in order so we can start treating this week because um, it is starting to flower. That's when you want to when you want to uh, treat it. It's easiest to see and tell what the plant is because it's intermingled with everything else in the marsh and along the upland edge that it really is best to to take care of it during the uh, flowering season but you don't want it to go to seed. So you only have a couple of weeks to deal with it. It's suspected that it came down the Merrimack River at some point. It's only been in um, the Great Marsh for maybe a dozen years. So we're trying to stem it before it really gets a a foothold and takes off. And I think that is happening. In some places it's, you know, it's it's, um, been laborious to keep it in check, but 
um, I think we're we're doing that for the most part. Yeah. But you know, it's like whack-a-mole. You know, you get it well, here right. and then it pulls up. Yeah, and sort of differentiating else. between all the other things around it and you know not killing yeah. the good things. Right? Yep. The yep. things with... And so you know, every couple of years we'll do a uh, reconnaissance and go all around, um, including Cape Ann, outside the Great Marsh, but all up up and down all the waterways looking for where it is so that we can put it on the list for treatment for the following season. How does a a species or anything, a plant, become categorized as invasive? What does it mean to be invasive? It starts to crowd out and overwhelm the other vegetation, essentially the native vegetation. You can even have invasive um, native plants. I mean, you look at like poison ivy or grapevine or something like that, you know, which is is a native plant, but it can become invasive as well. Non-native invasives generally have more of a, a foothold in that they don't have the competition. They don't have anything that mm. will go after it. So it right. spreads even more rapidly. That's like the so green like crab. Like the green crab, exactly. which I was green getting crab, to. Which, yes. which, which I can't wait to talk about because we had that sort of animated, the three of us at a lunch one day, this great conversation about how to solve the green crab problem. But two things I learned from your article that I thought were, were fascinating. One is they came in the ballast water from ships. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, who, yeah, I would say that's probably the, the most common way for a lot of these marine invasives to come is in the ballast water of ships from years and years, decades ago. Right. And, you know, once they get in, there's nothing, you know, to stop them. And they're European. Yeah. I mean, a lot of the invasives we have are, are Eurasian. Right. But the green crab is European and probably came via... Greenland and Iceland, so down from the northern end, you know, so it's a more cold water species, which is opposite a lot of what's going on, starting to happen now with climate change and warming seas. Right, right. So getting out in front of the green crab is difficult because, as you noted, one female will have 180,000 babies. Yes, (laughs) yeah, and so they're everywhere. And there is a program uh, that's been in place for a number of years now where this um, coastal legislative delegation has been funding a green tra- green crab trapping program, 40 cents a pound, to remove trap and remove green crabs from the system. Um, and that's been happening, Gloucester, Essex. Ipswich has been doing it on their own. They've had their own internal program for a while, but they're, they're involved in this as well. And Newbury, for some reason... Rally has been in the program, but they haven't really gotten the trappers to do it. But it's difficult to see how effective it is because the green crab populations will sort of go up and down with climate and the, mm-hmm. the temperature of the water. The colder the winter, the less survival of the um, the small crabs. So nobody really keeps track of that. We haven't either. We've had a monitoring program. We had one going on for a number of years to when... They were last really heavy, which I think was 2015 or 16. So we had about a five-year period where we were monitoring them. But in some of those years, you can drop a, a trap, leave it overnight, and the next day it's completely filled. The typical trap will hold 500 crabs maybe. Oh and, you know, the trappers have told me that, you know, they might have 50 traps out. They'll drop a trap. 
by the time they finish all 50, come back, the first trap they put in is already filled. You know, so wow. there are a lot of them out there, and you see them everywhere. I mean, you go to the right. beach, you know, you see them in the creeks, you see them, you know, from your boat, whatever, you right. know. And you mentioned that they've, they've caused problems with the clamming industry. Yeah, I mean, the, yeah, I mean, they eat the, um, the small clams, um, yeah. and that was the big problem a few years ago. That's why the um, Senator Tarr got involved, Brad Hill, when he was a uh, rep there, got heavily involved in developing this um, bounty program right. um, because it was really devastating to the, the clam industry. All the seed clams were being eaten up. And, you know, I think that's probably one of the reasons that we lost um, most of the mussel beds in the Great Marsh as well. Yeah. There used to be a lot of mussel beds. There are hardly any more left. Uh, two that I know of are Kenomo Point on the rocks in Essex and Pavilion Beach in Ipswich where there are rocks as well. And probably it's hard for the green crabs to get footing there so they can't get the, get at the um at the mussels but i have noticed just last year one of our eelgrass beds was dug up by clamors which was devastating it was like five years worth of work that they dug up and but we did notice that on all the overturned plants and the rhizomes and stuff that same season we found mussel spat starting to grow millions of them and in the green eelgrass beds yeah and uh we went back early this spring and saw that those um mussels are now about two inches in uh size so they've outgrown the size that a green crab can get so you know hoping that maybe we'll get a mussel bed there from the uh from the the, from the uh eelgrass and we're back out there planting eelgrass in the deeper waters just beyond the mussel bed. So now we have a double stabilization of that channel. We have eelgrass. We're using divers for that, as well as the mussels. And with all the sand coming into the flood tidal delta from Plum Island and the erosion going on up there, we're starting to get marsh growing on the uh, old flats. So that area is starting to really stabilize nicely, which is what you want to do if you're want to protect against uh storms right right so. right, right that that fantastic buffer yeah naturally protecting it yeah super now i have a question you did talk about the big four invasives and i cannot figure out what the fourth one is tunica oh. marine marine invasives in general i mean green crabs are, are part of that but tunicates uh probably one of the biggest ones and they're an animal they range in size in some cases they look like a, an orange moss that grow on things to uh, something the size of your finger. And they're like a siphon-type animal that sucks water in and okay. puts water out. But they grow on lines and bottoms of boats and docks okay. and all that stuff and foul all those things all the time. And they really need a hard substrate to grow on, and they really need to be in a high salinity water, so near, near um, seawater parts per thousand like 32 30 probably above 30 32 and what, what do they do what, what what is the damage that they cause they just grow all over everything you know and they take it over yeah they take it over um so hmm. the, and those are something that you know you can't really do anything about other than to monitor um really yeah There's no mean, treatment. 
Not really. I mean, you, you, they've tried treating waters in some salt ponds in, I think, down on the Cape or on the vineyard. And it just killed off everything in there. And then as soon as that passed through, they just grew back again. So, you know, there really isn't a lot you can do. Okay. Okay. <laughs> well, I mean, it's funny. I, I just saw Nicholas Sullivan. Uh, I just saw him. He's the author. He wrote The Blue Revolution. Yeah. Very interesting book. I'm in the middle of it, so I haven't quite finished it yet. But I heard him speak at the Sawyer Free Library. Very interesting guy. And he was talking about how, um, you know, and he's a, an ex-technology writer um, and, uh, you know, academic. He's out of New Bedford. But he's he, it's called The Blue Revolution. And one of the things he talked about with this particular area is the thing that, I've, that struck me. One is there's a symbiotic relationship between shellfish seaweed and sort of grasses like eelgrass they're very symbiotic and if you can sort of encourage them together you do a lot for global warming and i don't know about invasive species though because that's the problem <laughs> um but the other thing he said uh, which i was not aware of is that and you probably are that the seawater change the 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 you know the temperature change in seawater is most acute right now globally the first place is the Gulf of Maine. Yeah, Maine very high. is warming up faster, much, much faster than the rest. Yeah, and that probably impacts. Yep. The Great Marsh. Yep. I mean, and all sorts of things. And we're, you know, we're starting to get uh, not. It's rare, but you see blue crabs up here, and you know, a lot of stuff that really is mid-Atlantic. You know, starting to show up, which is. You know, it's not, it just, it's happening so rapidly that it upsets the equilibrium, sure. you know. But they do eat green crab. The blue crab eat the green crab, so. <laughs> you know, that might be, <laughs> <laughs> and if the green crab is a cold water species, then maybe that is the one. And, and rising seas will flood Phragmites to the point where they can't grow. So, so. Yeah. I know, but, but what else is going to happen? Yeah, you know. Well, this sort of. Global Armageddon will just take care of everything yes. all by itself. Yes. So, well, it's very interesting to talk about invasives, and I can't wait to read the article. Absolutely. No, thank you so much for all of all of this good information, and we'll keep our eyes out, and, and we look forward to hearing how how your efforts continue over time and keeping our marsh safe and happy and healthy. Thank sure. you, Peter. Thank you, Peter Fippen. Thank you for listening to this episode of Sidecar. To hear more Cape Ann stories like these. Subscribe to the Sidecar Podcast from thecricket.com on your favorite podcasting platform.